Earthquakes are amazing phenomena that can in minutes completely change our perception of reality. What we had counted on, trusted in, taken for granted as solid or even permanent, unshakable, is suddenly shaken apart and often never the same again. Life brings earthquake-like experiences for all of us, whether we want them or not. We cannot control that. But to some degree, what we can and must control is our reaction to them. Sometimes everything we thought we knew about God, about Jesus, and even about what's important or impressive in life gets shaken. Might there be some hidden value, some hidden treasure to be gained from these oh-so-uncomfortable experiences? The answer is yes. Am I on? I am. I am. I'm on. Uh, we're continuing in the series, but I want to start you off a um, little bit unusual today. And, and this is something you kind of have to either seriously apply to yourself or not for it to have much meaning. But let me share this first slide. My life feels mostly like, and if you have one of those handy-dandy FCF pens and anything to write on, you might want to write this down because there's a good chance I'm going to come back to this at the very end of today's message. That's the goal. Perhaps you can remind me, should I forget? <laughs> so my life, and you gotta, you got to work with me on this, and I know you're not ready mentally. You're still thinking about, am I awake? Am I here? Am I still at home in bed? But my life feels mostly like, feels, your life, your life feels mostly like a maze, you know, meaning you're, you're just kind of maneuvering around. You're not sure what's going to happen next. You just feel kind of confused maybe. A struggle, disappointment, or an adventure. Now, if we were, if we were kids in school or something, we'd all know, what's the right answer? Adventure, adventure, adventure. But don't do that. Don't do that because, you know, you and I need to be honest with ourselves and with God for God to be able to take us on the journey that's individualized, okay? We're all different places. It is, there is nothing wrong in feeling like your life is a maze or a struggle or a disappointment. That's the In fact, just if it will relieve you any, there have been times in my life where each and every one of those would have been applicable for me. Okay, all right, tuck that away. Earthquake shakings. Uh, we're going to look at today a particular shaking that um, would have been better perhaps were this Easter but we're, we're going to look at this shaking that's associated with the resurrection of Jesus. But what we're going to be focusing on is this, Jesus' ability. Now, I want to get you thinking a little bit about Jesus' ability, perhaps in ways that maybe we don't ordinarily focus. The truth of the matter is, for nearly 2,000 years now, it doesn't matter where you go in the world, all over the world, it doesn't matter what a person's educational level, economic level, doesn't matter, whatever generation, 1st century, 2nd century, 3rd century, 5th, 15th, 16th, it doesn't matter where you go, what people's geography is, what people's sociology is, everywhere you go, every generation since Jesus arrived on the planet, there are human beings that have been greatly impacted by Jesus. They're, they're whole, some of them would say, some of us certainly would say that, that our entire lives are dependent upon this revelation that the creator of the universe has given of himself in Jesus of Nazareth. 
Now, is Jesus so impactful, and has he been so impactful through all these different generations? Is it because he was just this extraordinary teacher with ideas that nobody's ever heard before? Don't, don't answer yet. What, was it maybe because Jesus was unlike any personality that the planet has ever seen? There was just no one in character ever like Jesus. Hold, hold again. What was it because maybe Jesus shared ideas about life that no one had ever thought about, no one had ever conceived of before? Was it the uniqueness, the unique core of his philosophy of life? Was that what caused generation after generation after generation of people at all intellectual levels to put their trust in him and become his follower and have their lives continuously transformed? It, let, let me be more simple. Why is it that 2,000 years later, the calendar in most of the Western world is based on the arrival on the planet of this person called Jesus of Nazareth? He was just a peasant living in a forgotten place in the Roman Empire. In fact, a place that nobody wanted to be stationed. So, so what's the key? What is the reason that Jesus was remembered, is remembered, is always going to be remembered? What is the key? Was it his character? Was it his teaching? Was it his ideas? Was it his philosophy of life? Or was it something very obvious and very different? Was it his ability? Let me push for my, my belief on that. If it were not for Jesus' unique ability, if the planet Earth had not seen a human being step onto its surface who could do things that had never been done before by anyone and did them so many times that it was undeniable. Even Jesus' enemies could not deny that Jesus did multiple miracles. The best they could come up with is one time saying, well, yeah, you're doing miracles because Satan is empowering you to do them. But they never even tried to deny them. I want to suggest to you that the reason Jesus, generation after generation after generation, has credibility, has impact on lives, when you boil it all down, as wonderful and unique as his character was, as extraordinary as his teaching and his leadership and his philosophy of life, as extraordinary as all those things were, if you took away his ability, I don't believe we'd be talking about him. I, I don't believe we would remember him. I think he would have just went down in history as one more nice person. His ability, folks, have you thought through this at times? Jesus, through pure thought, could manipulate atoms and molecules and cells, human cells. Every time he healed somebody, a process was occurring that never had the planet seen before. He was using his mind, pure thought, pure spirit, causing physiological changes in atomic structure, molecular structure, cellular structure in human beings to heal them of every disease. It didn't matter what the disease. Blind eyes were opened. Deaf ears were made to hear. All kinds of miracles. Every kind of miracle you can see. We call them miracles, but they were just normal processes to Jesus. He, he could multiply matter. Remember the people all gathered, the 5,000? They were ready for a meal, and Jesus takes just a little bit of bread, you know, and he multiplies it, and everybody's filled, and they have baskets left over. He gets on a boat with his buddies. He's tired, man. He falls asleep storm comes they're experienced sailors they're scared to death they're crying don't you care that we're going to perish they say to jesus 
And Jesus just stands up and says, shh, be still. And a storm, a full-blown storm stops. Now, when you start thinking this through, we're talking about ability that this planet has never seen before. But you know what? With all of his ability, with all of his miracles, with all of the healings, I don't care if you're a leper that got healed. I don't care if you're a blind person that got healed. I don't care if you were one of the paralytics that got healed. The, the truth of the matter is, every one of those individuals that Jesus supernaturally healed, or naturally from his perspective, they all have one thing in common. Anybody want to guess what it was? You're afraid, rightly so. You're, you can't read my mind. You know? They all had one thing in common. They all still died. Every one of them. Every one of them that got healed died. But Jesus, he took three different individuals that had actually died. A little girl that had died, he brought her back to life. He took the son of a widow in a city called Nain. He brought him back to life. He was dead. His buddy Lazarus, who had been dead in the grave for four days, he brought him back to life. But none of that would have really mattered either because they all died again too. But then Jesus started right at the very beginning of his ministry. He told his followers, he said, you know, ultimately I'm going to be killed. But I'm going to rise again after three days. He kept telling them that all through this extraordinary, some of you may know this, some of you may not know this. Human history has been altered forever because of three and a half very brief years of the life and ministry of this man who we know to be the creator of the universe called Jesus it was only three and a half years it was just this little quick blip in time it changed everything but he predicted his own death repeatedly toward the end of his ministry the last year he predicted it repeatedly he told very specifically he was going to be whipped he was going to be beaten he was going to be crucified but he would rise again the third day that is one heck of a claim it is one thing to bring people back to life only to have them die again it is an extraordinary thing to predict the exact way you are going to be killed and then to predict three days later you'll rise from the grave Christianity Christianity would be the easiest religion in the world to stop it's the only one that makes these kind of outrageous claims Jesus, nobody's made the claims of Jesus Jesus claimed to forgive sins raise the dead be the judge of all humanity be the creator of the universe nobody's made claims like Jesus he claimed that you kill me I'll come back to life and he did it and the evidence is compelling I'm going to share it with you later compelling it would stand up in most courts of law it would stand up in any historical examination the evidence that he actually rose is compelling so we're going to look at Jesus' ability today because I am fearful that today we don't process Jesus' ability sufficiently and therefore we don't derive the benefit from it that God intends us to derive I mean essentially what, what we saw in Jesus he was the Messiah that was not just going to save the world from bad politics which is all the Jews wanted they wanted the overthrow of the Roman Empire no he was going to save the world and he was trying to prove by his ability by showing his ability he was trying to prove that he could actually save humanity from everything that we dread we dread disease we dread accidents we, we dread uh, being paralyzed we dread bad weather we dread starvation he was demonstrating by his ability I can rescue you from everything that you're vulnerable to these miracles were all very purposeful he was he was the Messiah he was the rescuer he was the Christ but he was going to rescue on this comprehensive level not just some little social political level 
I said it last week, and I want to say it again. Jesus could not be more disinterested in politics. And if we are his followers, <laughs> you go ahead and have your political view. I have my own. I'm very strong political views. But I'm going to tell you, my loyalty is to one king and one kingdom. It is the kingdom of God. And we as Christ followers should never, never be engaging in fussing and fighting about politics. I don't care what position you take. That, that, that shouldn't be true of us. And we certainly shouldn't be fussing and fighting and dividing with one another over politics. Jesus could not be more disinterested in politics because every global system of politics, they all have one problem. You know what it is? Me. You. Human beings. They're all going to fall short. They're all going to be deficient. Don't be amazed. All right. So, Jesus' ability. Let's, let's probe in this. And the first thing we're going to look at is Jesus' ability exposes the limitations of death. Death is the monster, man. It's the one that chases us down. From the moment that you and I are born... <laughs> this is kind of pessimistic, particularly if you're young. But for truth be told, from the moment we are born, we are moving toward death. Isn't that a happy thought? You want to you want to be the light of a, light of a party? Just start talking about death. You know, <laughs> why do we hate it so much? Well, I don't hate it, Randy. You hate it if you're saying. Every human being given the choice to live or die unless they are in excruciating mental or emotional pain always chooses to live. We, we are driven to live. So death, Jesus, his ability, his power, if you want to use that term, it exposes that death has a limit. It has a limit. Let, let's, let's look at some verses that show how haunted we are by death. But let's first go back to the earthquake shaking where Jesus exposed the limits of death. Here we go. We're going, going back to the Easter event. After the Sabbath at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Jesus had been crucified. He'd been in there for three days. Here we go. There was a violent what? Earthquake. That's what this whole series has been about. Events that occur, you know, congruent with earthquakes. There was a violent earthquake for the angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. The angel said to the women, Don't be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. So here we have the, the exposure that death has limits. Jesus had risen exactly the way that he said now Jesus made promises while he was still alive on earth he promised that everyone that would become his follower that he would give them eternal life he promised he would raise them and that we would stand with him for eternity so his resurrection was the the assurance that all of his promises would come to pass so, so they're critical for us today Jesus ability exposes the limitations of death let's go on now now, now, here's a look at death apart from Jesus' resurrection and exposure of the limitations of death. This is we humans facing death without the hope that Jesus' resurrection brings. This is, this is the words of King Solomon at a time in his life where he drifted away from God. I'm not going to ask you, but I bet you somebody in here, is there at least one person here that would say, yeah, there was a time in my life when I drifted away from God. Can I get one person? 
<laughs> okay. Solomon drifted away, and he was assessing life philosophically without God. And here's some of his conclusions. He says, no one has power over the wind to contain it, and no one has power over the time of their what? Death. Death. Can I ask you a question? Is there like an age where it's impossible to die? I mean, if you're under a certain age, do, do you, are you kind of, you get a ticket, a death pass? Can, uh, I don't know, can children die? How about teenagers? Can, can teenagers die? How about, how about strong, young adults, man, they're ready to take on the world? Can they die? We know these truths, but we don't like to drift on them. We don't like to focus on them very much. We are all vulnerable every second of our life. By the way, is there anybody here that prayed the Thanksgiving prayer over Thanksgiving? You know the Thanksgiving prayer? It, oh, God, I promise if you'll spare me this night, I'll never be such a glutton ever, <laughs> ever again. <laughs> you sit very straight for a couple hours, fearful that your heart may attack you. <laughs> That's the Thanksgiving prayer. <laughs> Solomon goes on. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must what? Must die. He goes on. So I what? When Solomon thought about this, no matter how wise he was, he was considered to be the wisest man of his time, perhaps any time, certainly the wealthiest, a man who literally explored and tried a little bit of everything, every time he thought about death, he says, this doesn't make sense. I hate life because it can end at any time and it certainly will end at some time. He says, I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is what? Meaningless. Man, death is the ultimate spoiler. So, Looking at death apart from Jesus' resurrection that exposes the limitations of death, death is grim. Now, people try to rationalize it because we know we can't escape it, but we don't like it. Now, I want, you, I want to contrast these rather pessimistic statements with Jesus' statements while he was still alive during that three-and-a-half-year ministry when the subject of death came up for him. Listen to John's Gospel. He says, the reason my father loves me is that I do what? Lay my life down. Now, notice he, he's saying, you know, I, I, I take the initiative. I lay my life down only to take it up again. That's talking about the resurrection all before it took place. No one does what? No one takes it from me. Now, it didn't look that way. When they roughed Jesus up. When they nailed him to the cross, when they spoke, you know, poked him in the side with a spear, it, it didn't look like he was in control, but he was. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of mine own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. So when Jesus looked at death, he didn't see it as something that made life meaningless. He didn't see it as something that he was powerless over. He exposes its limitations. He's saying that ultimately God's going to deal with death and that he's going to lay his down so that he can take it up again and that he will. Now let's, let's follow this up with a few other verses. 
In 1 Corinthians 15, 26, it says of death, it says the last enemy to be destroyed is what? Death is an enemy. You say, but wait, wait a minute, Randy. Doesn't Scripture say that for a Christian, to die is better, you know? You, you go home to be with the Lord. We're, we're going to get to that. That's true. But death is an enemy. It is an abnormality. It is the product of beings that bear the image of God living contrary to that image, contrary to our design, which brings this contaminant of death both uh, organically as well as sociologically uh, into the universe. The last enemy, it's not going to go on forever. God's allowing death for a little bit of time so that he can destroy it forever, just like he's allowing evil for a little while so that he can destroy it forever. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Revelation 21, verse 4, where God makes a new heaven and a new earth. I urge you to read it sometime on your own. Death ends. It says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more what? Picture a society where death doesn't exist. You're never any older, really, unless you like counting. You live 1,000 years, 10,000 years, 14,000, 100,000. You're no closer to death. This is what we were made for. That's why we are, we are always yearning for eternity. We suppress it because we feel helpless. Death is always chasing us down. But if we start looking at death through the limitations that Jesus exposes about it, we start realizing, no, the life we really want, an eternal life, a life where every day is good and the day after it is better than the one before it, that is meant to be and that will be for everyone in this life that chooses the life that Jesus exhibited and because of that puts their trust in him and becomes his follower and becoming his follower the primary goal is I I want to be like him I want to be just like him I see in him the way life of every human being and every person in the universe was meant to be he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes there'll be no more death nor mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away so this is where it's going and Jesus resurrection the earthquake shaking then was the start of this shaking of the power of death now death still has a grip on each and every one of us to a certain degree as we sit here today in fact it has differing degrees of grip on us as we sit here today and we'll, we'll kind of come to the other side of that in just a bit one of the things that I want to do, and I'm going to do this as fast as I can because I've got a lot of ground to cover. I, I want to show you that the evidence from a, a distant standpoint, just from a courtroom standpoint or from a historical analysis standpoint, it's credible evidence that Jesus actually physically rose from the grave. Let, let me give you these evidences as quick as I can. Evidence number one, there was a Roman seal put on Jesus' tomb so that no one dared disturb it. That Roman seal was broken. Every tomb, uh, excuse me, his tomb was empty except for the grave clothes. When you read the story, it looks, looks like his head cloth was tossed to the side and the rest of the cloths that were wrapped around his body were just flattened out. The body was not there, but the grave clothes or grave wrappings were. The, Christianity would have been the easiest, uh, easiest religion in the world to stop. All they had to do was find a body, produce a body. They could not do that. The soldiers were gone. Roman, Roman soldiers did not run away because that meant death. Something really catastrophic had to have occurred for them to run away. The unexplained massive stone move. These stones were two and a half tons, sometimes more than that. It was just tossed to the side, we read in Scripture. 
the radical change in two skeptics and one enemy Jesus half-brother James did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah when he was alive he did not follow him can you imagine how hard it would be to be Jesus brother you're in trouble all the time he's perfect you know, so that's not any, so James James wanted no part of Jesus evidently while he was alive but when James his brother saw him or his half brother saw him alive from the dead James not only became a follower of Jesus he became a leader in the church of Jerusalem he ultimately laid down his life for the cause the other skeptic was a guy named Thomas remember all the disciples saw Jesus when he rose but one guy was missing Thomas Thomas told the rest of them he said you, you guys I'm not buying this I'm not unless I can put my fingers in the wounds in his side and his hands I'm not buying it Jesus appears a week later and Thomas just collapses and says my Lord and my God he transforms two skeptics and then one enemy there was this guy named Saul of Tarsus. How many know who I'm talking about, Saul of Tarsus? His name gets changed to the Apostle Paul. He ends up becoming the man that the Spirit of God uses to write 13 books of the New Testament. But he started out as the first persecutor of Christianity. He sought to stamp out the cause of Christ. But when he saw the risen Christ, very much alive, from heaven, he was struck with blindness for three days and puts his trust in Christ and follows him for the rest of his 32 years even unto death Nero executes him he still won't recant his devotion to Jesus two skeptics one enemy then there was this the repeated appearance over 40 days when you read the book of Acts chapter 1 verse 3 it says Jesus didn't just rise from the dead and appear one time he continued to appear to people over a 40 day period so this this was not something done in the corner somewhere at one point 1 Corinthians 15 tells us there were 500 people at once eyewitnesses eyewitnesses count in court that saw Jesus was risen from the dead the change of day of worship Jews were strict Sabbatarians they only worshipped on Saturday they, they wouldn't dare worship on any other day but we find that the Christian community that was made up primarily of Jews at the beginning they started worshipping on Sunday the first day of the week because that's the day that Jesus rose from the grave that was enormous for a Jew to break free from the Sabbath and then there was this, the transformation of the disciples. Some of you know the story when Jesus was arrested in the garden. Man, they ran. They ran in panic. Peter denied him three times. They all were hiding. The day that Jesus <laughs> rose from the grave, the only people that were uh, you know, bold enough to get out were the women. I'm not sure what that's all about, but the rest of the guys were hiding. <laughs> and until Jesus literally materialized, you know, kind of like the Star Trek thing, you know, just kind of beamed down and materialized, in the room where they were hiding they weren't going outdoors they were probably trying to figure how do we get out of Jerusalem <laughs> but once they saw him man they were changed they were changed guys they changed their world they challenged the Jews that had crucified him they went and they took the message of Christ worldwide most of them dying for the cause they refused to stop telling the truth about God and about life as it's revealed in Jesus these guys were transformed what else explains such a transformation they ran like normal scared people until they saw Jesus was really alive he really meant it when he said three days I'll come back to life again so these are powerful, credible, uh, undeniable kind of evidences that would stand up in, frankly, a lot of courts of law, as well as any historical analysis of was this a valid event. 
So now I want to turn corners with you for about almost three minutes. This is going to take a lot of focus. I want you to turn to the screens, and I'm going to introduce somebody to you called uh, Dr. Mary Neal. Uh, she's a spine surgeon. She was a teacher at USC for about five, or a uh, director of the program at USC for about five years. But this is a brilliant, credible woman, and she is speaking at a TED Talk. How many are familiar with TED Talks? Okay. Good evening, and thank you for being here. I'm Dr. Mary Neal, and I'm going to talk to you tonight about death, because how you understand death directly determines how you experience life. My own understanding of death changed in 1999 when I died while kayaking in South America. I was pinned under 8 to 10 feet of water at the base of a waterfall, and I was without oxygen for 30 minutes before CPR was initiated. And when I regained consciousness, I was in a state of shock. Not because I just drowned, not because of my multiply broken legs, and not because I was on the side of a remote river with no access to medical care. No, I was in an absolute state of shock because I could not believe that I'd been sent back to my body from a place I will call heaven. It was peaceful underwater, and I was held and comforted by Christ. And no, I didn't just think or hope it was Jesus. I knew it was Christ just as I would know my husband of 30 years if I'd seen him in the grocery store. And I was taken through a life review that had little to do with judgment and everything to do with understanding and compassion and grace. And I was shown the beauty that came out of every heartbreak, every challenge, and every disappointment of my life. And then I was released to the heavens. My spirit rose up and out of the river, and I was immediately greeted by a group of people or spirits who had known me and loved me as long as I have existed. And even as they took me down this beautiful pathway woven together with fibers of God's love and exploding with color and flowers and the aromas of flowers, I could look back at the river, and I watched as... My purple bloated body was pulled to the shore and my friends started CPR. And I recognized my body and I knew that I was dead. But despite having a magnificent life with a wonderful husband and these four young children who I loved more than life itself, I felt like I was home and I really had absolutely no intention of returning. And then I was told it wasn't my time, that I had more work to do on earth, and that I'd have to go back to my body. I want to share um, a blessing with you. Some of you have already read this book, but some of you have not, so do yourself a favor. There's a book by uh, a man named John Burke called Imagine Heaven. If you have not read it, please read it. It, it has about a, over 100 of these kinds of cases in the book but it's coupled with what the Bible teaches about heaven and it just makes an extraordinary book now Mary's story was in his book and um, I, I wanted you to see though that, here's the thing I know that some of these experiences these life or near-death experiences are questionable but there are a lot of them that frankly they align with what we find in scripture and, and they're very I find them you may not I find them extraordinarily encouraging and they just give some objectivity and clarity to this. So if you, um, if you are not one that has read that book, I, I totally urge you to get it again. It's called Imagine Heaven by a guy named John Burke.
So Jesus' ability exposes the limitations of death, but Jesus' ability is meant to free us. It's meant to free us from the fear of death. Now, I said earlier, we're all still living under the influence of death to certain degrees. To some degree, it is necessary in this life. Um, you know, we're not, we're not, I'm not knocking bungee jumping, but we're not meant to go bungee jumping all through life. You know what I'm saying? We're not meant to be foolish daredevils. We are, we are meant to be good stewards, good managers, good caretakers of these bodies that God gives to us. Uh, we're not meant to, you know, stand out in front of an 18-wheeler and think that, you know, we're indestructible. We're meant to have a certain degree of respect of our destructibility, and that includes the fear of death. That's healthy. Um, but there's a kind of a fear of death that we have that is far, far, far from healthy. And that's what I want to kind of explore with you uh, a little bit in the second point of this message. Now, there's a passage of Scripture from the book of Hebrews. It's tricky. It, it takes some taking apart. I've done this with you and as a church on several occasions, but I'm going to dare to do so again. In the book of Hebrews chapter 2, it says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. It's talking about Jesus, okay? So that, so he took part of our humanity, so that, when you hear so that, you know an explanation is coming, so that by his what? By his death, he might break the power, break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is who? Now, every time I teach this passage, I make clear, this does not mean that the devil can knock you off anytime he wants. That's not what that's teaching. You remember the book of Job? If you, if you don't know the book of Job, just read the first two chapters. Uh, Job gets permission to test, uh, or, or Satan gets permission to test Job, but God specifically says, but you can't take the man's life. God has the last word. Our times are in his hands. They are not in Satan's hands. But Satan does know how to use the power of death to work us over and control us very well. And I'll show you how that works in just a minute. But let me go on with this passage. And to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their what? Now, this is confusing. We say, first of all, Randy, I'm not a slave to anyone or anything. And, I, and maybe some of you, you know, there are some people who are just born, man, courageous like lions. I'm not afraid of death. You know, I look death in the eye. That, that's not what it's talking about. Even the people that say that are likely slaves to the fear of death. And so what I've done for years is unpack this, this portion of Scripture with, with diagrams of various sorts because unless we understand what this is saying, we're not going to understand ourselves, and we're not going to understand why sometimes when we do not want to sin anymore, in other words, where, where we trust Christ and we want to live the way God designed us, but we find we're in a battle with some of these old ways to find out where this got its, its motivation from, where did it gain this power over us towards sin even after we believe that it's destructive living and, and insane living it still has some power so I'm going to share this with you here's the way this works I call it the fear of death desperation cycle it is our fear of death and here's what it means by fear of death I know that I came into existence and I didn't have a word to say about that I didn't have any choice in that and I know by observation I'm going to leave Existence, and I don't have any choice for the most part about that. Okay, so, so we know that we are mortal. That's this fear of death. And what it creates is a desperation. Um, desperation is illustrated today uh, in funny, humorous, 
knocks, knock, you know, ways that don't matter, but, but like movies like The Bucket List. The bucket list is this notion that you only go around once in life, and so you've got to get all that you can. You've got to experience everything that you can. You don't know when your life is going to end, so get your bucket list off, because that's it. After, after that's it, you take a dirt nap. You're not sure what happens after that. So it creates a desperation. I know I'm alive, and, and I know that certain things bring me pleasure, and they are enjoyable, and I know certain things bring me pain. I know I'm alive, but I don't know how long I'm going to be alive. How many of you know that next week you'll be alive? Can I see your hand? yeah you're wise people we don't know I'm not trying to be terrible here this morning but I don't know if I'm going to be alive tomorrow do you you don't <laughs> I hope you will be I hope we all will be but we don't know that creates this desperation cycle number one drive in human beings because of our knowledge that we are going to die but we want to live death is an enemy remember 1 Corinthians 15 26 the last enemy to be destroyed it creates desperation the first the first push of this desperation is for self-preservation we humans realize I have to do everything I possibly can to keep myself alive because given a choice live or die we want to live unless we are in so much mental, emotional, or physical pain that we can't endure. That, that changes the equation. So self-preservation becomes this consuming drive in every human, but it's not the only one. The one that, gets right, that goes right beside it is self-gratification. Self-gratification is nothing more than what I said earlier. We learn by experience in life certain things are pleasurable, enjoyable, so we want as many of those pleasurable, enjoyable experiences as is possible. We say things like, I just want to be happy. That's all I want to be is happy. You know, and that's okay. We all want to be happy. And then we want to avoid pain. I'm just curious. How many in this room, more or less, every day, you have at least a little pain. Can I see your hands? I am a member of the club. <laughs> and for you young whippersnappers, you're going to be joining. <laughs> so you have these two intensely powerful drives. I want to stay alive as long as I can. I want to have as much fun, pleasure as long as I can as while I'm here. And so this creates our philosophy of living. The best, the brightest, the masses that have lived and died on planet Earth are all driven by this simplistic cycle. Now here's the bad side of it. It creates darkened function. That's why I call it the desperation cycle. I grab onto any pleasure available because there's this thought in my mind, I, this might be my only shot at it. I might never get this chance again. I better grab it while I can. And get the gusto while you can. So I make stupid, stupid, destructive, self-destructive, socially destructive decisions. I'm darkened in my reasoning because I'm so scared that I might die and I'm so driven to get as much pleasure as I can as long as I can. I make bad decisions on top of one another that hurt me and hurt others and that's what the Bible calls sin. Sin is not arbitrary. The Creator doesn't just make an arbitrary list of rules. He says, this is the way I've designed you. Do this, and it will build you, bless you, develop you. Don't do that, because it'll, it'll tear you down and destroy you. Sin is not arbitrary. It is the Creator saying, because I love you so much, you need to understand what, what fuel works best inside you. Stay away from this take in as much of that he says take in as much righteousness and holiness and kindness and generosity and compassion as you can that, that's, that's fuel for your soul 
Stay away from the bitterness and the anger and the deceit and the, and the immorality. You know, they're going to tear you down. They're going to destroy you. They're like sand in the internal portions of our soul. So, so that's what this, this cycle is like. But unless that cycle, that fear of death is broken by something, we are more or less continuously the slaves of self-destructive living, which God calls sin. So how does this cycle does it when, when jesus rises from the grave how does this break the fear cycle and does that mean that i does, i go through life unafraid of anything no if you're unafraid of anything you're going to get yourself hurt <laughs> the fear objectivity that we have it, it's meant to protect us but we don't have to be driven it is this cycle that the resurrection of christ is meant to free us from let me let me try to break it down what, what it's saying is this the person that enters into the experience of Christ's resurrection enters into an eternal existence. It, it, it is this realization that I am not here today and gone tomorrow. I'm here today and I'm gone from here tomorrow maybe, but I'm going somewhere else and I'm very vital and very alive. My life is this eternal continuum. It just it just brings the chill factor back in your life. I don't have to get it all now. I don't have to do it all now. And let me tell you what else. Let me tell you what else. Some of us have said these, these words. I hate these words because they are not true. My best days, they're all behind me. My best days are all behind me. Lie, lie, lie. You have not had one of your best days yet. Your best days are all ahead of you. You will not miss out on anything that's good or worth having. It's all waiting for you. Your best days are all When you get your new resurrection body like Jesus and all those lights are turned on up here, you're going to be saying, why did I ever concern myself with missing out on something down there? So your best days are all, all this, all this breaks that cycle, that fear, that, that drivenness to do things that we know on our better days are stupid. We're relaxed. I'm, I'm an eternal entity. I'm here on a developmental journey, and I'm here in a war zone to carry out a rescue mission. Do you realize that? That as Christ followers, he says to me, he says, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything that I taught you, and I'm with you always to the end of the age. We are dropped into a war zone where we are called to be rescuers, rescuing those that can be rescued, teaching those that can be taught, bringing them back to their creator, back to their eternal destiny. And when you're in a war zone, you don't expect it to be home. You know that the conditions can be a little bumpy, but as long as you have your supplies necessary to carry out your mission, that's all you need. That's why Scripture tells us, if you have food and shelter, learn to be content with that. This isn't home. How many of you guys, when you get home, you look a little different. You, you, you put on some different clothes. Can I see some hands on that? And when you go home, how many of you have at least one light bulb that when you flip a switch, you have at least one, light comes on. Can I see your hands? There you go. Now some of you, some of you have the miracle device in which you can put food and you see nothing but a timer and it comes out hot 
that magical, mystical thing called a microwave. And, 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 and some of you might even have a screen to watch stuff on. How, how many have at least one screen? Oh, how many have a tablet or a computer screen as well? Oh, how many have a phone as well that has a screen? Just you get your multi-screen. <laughs> home, your home is so much better than Caesar that was living in Jesus' day, the richest man in the world, the Caesar of Rome, the emperor of Rome. Man, he didn't have a light switch. He didn't have a microwave. He didn't have any screens. How many of you, when you get cold, you can turn up the heat? Can I see your hands? Not Caesar. Now, he had a bunch of people running, put some wood by him, I guess, and light it on fire. How many of you, you're, you, we're talking royalty now. How many of you, in the summertime, you have devices that will either blow air on you that is chilled, synthetically chilled, or at least take the air in the room, twirl it around, and shoot it at you? How many have either of those? Climate control. <laughs> Woo, man. Climate control. Caesar didn't have that. Most human beings that ever lived and died on this planet didn't have that. Home. Your home, most of us, is where we find our greatest comfort. You know, it doesn't mean that there's not some friction there at times, but, but your home is where you're, you're coming. Jesus rises from the dead to say, you're on mission while you're on this planet, Earth. Your times are in my hands, but you're on mission. There are people that, are, that can be rescued. Rescue them. There are people that can be taught. Teach them. There are people that can be brought to me. Bring them to me. But this is a time to learn to be content with what you have because this is not your home. You're not, as, you're not as comfortable right now as what you will be later on tonight at home. You'll be way more comfortable. Home. How do I get that concept in my mind so that it regulates my interaction with people and day-to-day -day experiences in life? That becomes the question. Listen to what it says just to reinforce this a little bit. 2 Corinthians 5, it says, this this makes us confident whatever happens we realize that being where at home in the body means that to some extent we are away from the Lord as long as I'm here before your eyes I'm away from the Lord to some extent it goes on to say for we have to live by trusting him without seeing him we don't see Jesus now we trust him we, we live by that trust we are so sure of this that we would really rather be away from the body in death that's what it's talking about and be where now other translations read like this to be absent from the body for a Christ follower is to be present with the Lord it's not going to be any, any soul sleeping it's not going to be if, if, if all of us were to die right now we'd be seeing each other one millisecond and we'd be seeing Christ and the hosts of heaven the, the next millisecond no, no unconscious state the body goes unconscious the spirit never loses sight of reality to be absent from the body is to be instantaneously present with the Lord let me show you one more that, that just reinforces this. the apostle Paul he's writing to followers of Christ living in Philippi he says for me to live is Christ and to die is what? That man didn't want to die. He struggled all his life, 32 years, to avoid death. But he did know if worse happens, if my mission is over and, and I get called home, it's better at home 
than it is down here in the battlefield. This is the battlefield. This is the mission field. This is the developmental journey. We, we can develop and grow and become Christ-like in this war zone, but it's still a war zone. It's not home. He says, to be, he says, for me to live is Christ to die is gain. And I am torn between the two, a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is what? Better by far. Mary Neal. She said, hey, I, I, love, I love my kids. Love my husband. Love my life. But I was at home, she said, and, and I, I didn't want to go back. Now, this was an extraordinary admission by this woman. She, she's saying, as much as I love my kids, I didn't want to go back to them. As much as I love my husband, I, I, I didn't want to go back. As much as I love my career, I, I was at home finally. I did not want to go back to my body. I was, she says, I was forced back to my body. Listen to this one last verse from 1 Corinthians 15. It says, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The earthquake shaking of the resurrection of Christ, it is meant to free us from the fear of death so that we live as though we have all the time in the world and that we can't get it all in this life so we're no longer going to try to get it all in this life and even if we get it all in this life we wouldn't have the time to enjoy it in this life and if we try to enjoy it somebody come along and steal it anyway in most cases so we're going to wait till we're home because that's where the joy is and we're not going to be afraid of when this particular portion of the journey ends we're not going to be foolish we're going to try to stay alive because that's part of our mission that's part of our developmental journey but if the mission is over, we're going home. No more staying in death. All right. I want to show you one more clip of Mary Neal's talk. And then I'll, the land, landing gear's down. We're getting ready to hit the ground. <laughs> death is nothing more than the doorway to home. And it is the very existence of this home that brings context, purpose, and meaning to our time here on earth. Now, to help you understand this idea, I'm going to tell you a story about my childhood home. <laughs> now, when I grew up, I loved my home. I loved everything about it. I loved my family, my friends, my neighborhood, my little dog, the trees, the stream behind the house. I loved fresh-cut grass. When I was home, I felt comfortable and content. I felt safe and secure and loved, and I really never wanted to leave. But then one day, <laughs> I went off to summer camp. Now, I knew I'd be challenged. I was a little nervous. I'd never been away from home, didn't know what to expect. I assumed that I would learn and grow and maybe become a better me. <laughs> and I did. It was great. I learned to swim and sail and water ski. I learned about kindness and humility. I made friends. We made bonfires. It was great. But of course, it wasn't all good. The beds were hard, and I really didn't like the food. My sandals were stolen one day, and I was pretty angry. But I actually felt compassion for the little girl when I learned of her plight. And I ended up giving her most of my clothes. And I hated, hated, hated the time I spent in the nurse's cabin after being stung by a bee. But I was able to find humor in all of this because I knew that my time at camp was temporary. And before long, I'd be going back to my comfortable and familiar home. Sure enough, the camp bus came, took me home, and my friends were sad and they cried a little bit, but really, I was looking forward to going home and 
sleeping in my own bed, and I knew my family would be waiting for me, and they'd be overjoyed by my return. Now, the point I'm making with this story is that it was the existence and reality of my childhood home and the knowledge that I'd be going back there again that brought a context to my time at camp that allowed me to experience it as a great adventure. And since 1999, that's exactly how I experienced my life here on Earth. The reality and existence of our true and permanent spiritual home, the one I discovered on the other side of death, and the knowledge that I and you will be going back there one day brings a context to my time on Earth that allows me to experience it as a great adventure with great meaning and purpose and it changes the way I experience both good times and bad. That slide that I started you with, and I urge you to kind of mark yourself down, my life feels mostly like a maze. You know, you're just not sure where you're going, what's happening next. A struggle, disappointment, high expectations that haven't worked out maybe, or an adventure. You heard or used that word adventure. And here's what I know to be true. Even though we're likely to go through stages in life where all of these will be true of us, this can be the, the main truth of no matter what we're going through. It can be an adventure, but, but here's the key. We have to keep this lens in place, the, 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 the set of lenses of the resurrection of Christ. How many of you wear glasses? You, you need something to help your eyes, okay? So when you don't have the glasses on, so, so you can put them on, Paula, but, but like if you take them down, does things change? Do I look better or worse? <laughs> so we all know you got to keep the lenses on if you want to see clear. I'm going to share this little thing with you. If I could just go to that slide. Perception. I have to keep the lens of the resurrection on for my perception to be accurate and objective. That will then enable me to interpret things, interpret life very differently. If I'm seeing life through the lens of Jesus' resurrection and my eternality, then I interpret events differently. They're, they're an adventure. They're, they're not a disappointment or a letdown or, or, or agonizing sometimes. And then that causes me to react differently. Instead of being angry with God, I fall down and worship God and thank Him for the developmental journey, for the adventure, no matter which way the adventure is going. I'm offering to you today a change in your life, an earthquake-shaking change that you can, I can, we can all, if we keep these set of lenses of the resurrection of Christ on our eyes, when they drop off our eyes, we start living crazy like everybody else. You know, self-preservation, self-gratification. Get it all while you can, you know. And we get desperate and we get stupid and we sin and we destroy ourselves and people around us. Let me go further. There's some of us, we, we're, we're kind of living one leg over the fence and one leg on the other side of the fence. We're like still driven by desperation in certain sectors of our life. Maybe when it comes to sex, we got to get all we can, while we can, any way we can, even though we're violating every law in God's word, crystal clear, we know we are. Or when it comes to money, we say you got to get it all while you can, any way you can. When it comes to my business, when it comes to my money, I handle that differently. God sits over there and I sit here. Whatever your area is that you're kidding yourself, lying to yourself, stop it. 
Let Jesus' resurrection earthquake shake you out of your immorality, out of your greed, out of your sinful, whatever it is. We all got the junk. We know it. Let's get, let's get rescued today. Let's get cleaned up today. Let, let's do business with God today. Let's let him shake us with the resurrection of Christ and start living with the dignity and the righteousness and compassion and the goodness of people that are going to be his for eternity. We don't have to be afraid we're going to miss anything. We're not going to miss anything. Your good days, your best days, they're all out in front. You haven't experienced one of your best days yet. But you can start experiencing a very different quality of life. It can be an adventure, an adventure of trusting Christ. When Christ says, stop doing something, that's an adventure for me to stop it. When he says, start learning and do something, that's an adventure when I start to do it. Every day life can become an adventure. And I'm going to tell you, living enthusiastically every day of your life is not only possible, it is desirable. It is very, very desirable. And it's being offered to each and every one of us right here, right now, today. One last thing I'm going to play with you a little bit, this. Anybody know what that means? WYSIWYG. It's, it's fun to say WYSIWYG. Say WYSIWYG one time with me. WYSIWYG. Here's what it means. What you see is what you get. It was also a great song by the Dramatics in 1971. Some of you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I can't help it. It's pretty obvious. Anybody looking at me knows the date. <laughs> it's going distant. <laughs> but uh, the lens of the resurrection of Christ has to be kept in place. We have to remind ourselves to see life, to see ourselves in that light. Because what we see is what we will get. Trust me on that one. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of the resurrection of Christ. We need your help for this to penetrate into our minds, into our memories. We need your help uh, daily to put that lens of the resurrection on as we see ourselves, as we see our lives, as we see life itself, that we are called to be your fellow workers, your rescuers, and those that every day of our lives develop to become more like Christ, your son. It's in his holy name we pray and just thank you, thank you, thank you for this day and for all the good things you lavish us with. Amen.